Wow, this lockdown continues, huh? The the uh, pandemic, if it has done anything, uh, it has really hammered home that our spirituality and our faith really must be relevant and really must be useful. Too often, it seems that we remain too abstract, we remain generic in, in what we say and the teachings that we give, and if we stay up there in the ether someplace, if we stay somewhere just in the abstract concepts of our faith theologically, they can't really meet people at their point of need. It stays superficial. It, it, it remains a platitude. And this has brought home to me as I talk to more and more people throughout the weeks that we really need to be at ground level. We need to be able to talk straight across and again, be relevant and be useful in what we talk about and the way that we express our faith. And let's face it, if the gospel isn't relevant, if the gospel isn't useful, then what good is it? If it can't really sustain us where we live, if it can't actually help us to get through the difficulties in life, then it doesn't answer the questions that we need answered. It becomes kind of like a politician, you know? never really answers the questions you're trying to get answered and uses a lot of words, you know, wears up the clock or down the clock, but nothing really gets answered. Nothing really gets touched. We need the gospel to be exactly that. We need to see the gospel. We need to make the gospel relevant to us so that we can make it relevant to those who really need us. On Tuesdays and Wednesdays that we've been talking about, we've been discussing this spiritual response to the pandemic, the spiritual response to the to the lockdown and, and everything that is going on uh, in terms of both the medical and the financial realities that we're facing. And more importantly, or just as importantly, what this is teaching us or what this can teach us. And as we were talking through on um, this last week, especially Tuesday and Wednesday, we were talking about these issues, and everybody was being very positive. And they were saying, hey, you know, this is really making me more aware. It is, it is uh, forcing me to spend more time uh, with my God and, and in prayer and this and that. I, I don't know if we were all just sort of putting a brave face on or if that really was the case. But finally, at some point, someone spoke up and said, hey, you know what? I just have to be honest here. I'm really struggling. That kind of opened up the floodgates and everybody started talking because everybody is being affected by this at some level or another. And I got a text afterwards from someone who said that they were really grateful that this person spoke up because obviously they were feeling the same thing and they knew other people were and we didn't want to ever leave the impression that they were the only ones you know, in our community who were feeling that they were struggling and then feeling less than because they couldn't put the same spin or brave face on that everyone else's. Not that we can't have a balance, and we do want to have that balance, but we need to be real with each other. We need to be honest with each other and deal with what really is going on because as this lockdown continues, I'm talking to more and more people who really are struggling, and there's been a couple of them that were in real distress, as this goes on, you know, there's more chinks in our armor. Things that we thought that we had together, we're starting to see those cracks and we're starting to feel the stress and the anxiety and the fear and the depression, both medical, financial, and every other way. People are really starting to feel the isolation now, the loneliness. 
the fear of infection even, or the fear of financial ruin. There's anger and resentment in some people building over those that they see, are, or at least they perceive, are not taking the, the quarantine seriously, not taking the virus seriously. And then there's others that think that they're taking it too seriously. And so we've got both sides. And this is both people in their own homes, roommates and family members who aren't playing by the rules and, and making them fearful about their own infection. And then people that they see on TV, of course, in the news. It's all happening on both levels at the same time. But you've got this fear and you've got you know, loneliness and then you've got this anger and resentment that also can be building. And then you add that to the overwhelming fatigue that many people are feeling as they just try to continue to manage their households, especially if they have children at home and they're trying to manage homeschool. People who weren't trained in homeschool maybe have multiple kids at different grades and they're trying to manage them through their homeschooling with, what, multiple computers? I don't even know how they're doing that. And then when it's been raining and the kids getting, even get out into the backyard, you can imagine what that would be like with the homeschooling, the shopping, the cleaning. And some of our homes were sort of perched on a razor's balance anyway, financially, relationally, time management-wise. And now this has really thrown it over the edge. And where a family was really dysfunctional at the core anyway, it has pushed it into distress. I just read a statistic, and there are varying statistics, but the one that seemed to be most uh, you know, out there in terms of an average was that domestic violence calls and domestic violence cases have risen about 35% since the start of the quarantine. And if you think about that, it makes perfect sense. For a family that was already in that kind of dysfunction, now being forced to be together all the time, the abuser and the spouse, the, the victim, um, they can't get away from each other. And then you add the other stresses that are on top of this. It is difficult for even the victim to be able to call and to get help or even to talk to somebody because they can't get away and they can't have a private conversation. Um, the two people I spoke with, um, one of them had to take a walk in order to make the call and the other one waited until the other person left. It's, it's really difficult for people and we're seeing this starting to ramp up. What do you say to somebody like that when you're talking to them? I mean, the two messages that I really wanted to get across was, first of all, you're not alone. There are people here that will help you here at The Effect. There are people who it is their profession to be able to help. And the second is you need a safety plan. You need a plan because you are not choiceless. You're not alone and you're not choiceless. Now, when you get down to a certain place, there's not too many good choices or no good choices left, but there are still choices to be made. And I just wanted to get that out there for anyone who might be in distress, that there are these options. And you can call us if you want help. We do have a therapist on staff who is trained and has years of experience in, in domestic violence and these types of issues. But if you can't even have an out loud conversation, there is a, a website, just thehotline.org which is the domestic, National Domestic Violence Center, and you can chat or you can just email and, and you can start the ball rolling. Uh, I just really feel for these people who are having such difficulties and they have to be silent about it. It's very difficult for them to be able to do anything. 
Now, fortunately, most of us are not in that kind of extreme or dire situation. But again, we're all feeling something here. This is not right. And the longer it goes, the more it feels like it's not right. The more we start to worry about finances and other issues that are creeping up beyond just the medical issues. The question, I suppose, is if we're really going to be relevant and useful here, if we're really going to talk about our faith and our spirituality in a way that is meeting us where we all are right now, then we have to talk about how we're going to maintain a balanced relationship at home, how we're going to maintain a balanced home. How do we maintain our own poise and composure through everything that we're feeling and the layers of things that we're feeling? And how are we going to let this experience, everything that we're going through, really teach us? And teach us about balance. Teach us about deeper relationship. Teach us about increased compassion and and empathy and the ability to really see other people where they are. As far as addressing all these domestic issues, well, that's something that we can't do here. And they're really specific. Again, if you have issues that you want to talk about, you can call us. Um, you know, we can, we can talk to you. We can talk about specifics and ways that maybe you can bring the temperature down in the house or strategies that you can use, that sort of thing. But we really can't get into that here. And it would be sort of irresponsible to give sort of a one-size-fits-all blanket. But even as I say that, there are some principles that we can take a look at. Jesus, when he was asked which was the greatest commandment, you know, kind of going from the the specific to the general, Jesus takes us on this little journey. What is the greatest commandment? And you probably all know what he said. He cited two of the Old Testament scriptures, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. And he said simply to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said there's another one that's just like it. And for my money, he was saying, there's another one that is exactly the same, and that is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. They're both the same. They're one and the same. You can't love God without loving your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor without loving God. But what he did was take us from all of those laws, all of those commandments, and boil it down to one general commandment that would cover all of these issues It's a principle. In Matthew 5, he brings out the golden rule. You all know that one. Do unto others the way you would have others do unto you. And he said, in this one command lies all the law and the prophets. And for a Jew, law and the prophets meant everything in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and everything in the prophetic books of the Bible. That was two-thirds of their scriptures was the law and the prophets. He said, everything that's in there is covered in this one command. Just do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Three or four generations before Jesus in the Jewish tradition, that golden rule still existed, only it was in the negative. Don't do to others what is hateful to you. But that idea of reciprocity was still there. And truthfully, it exists in every responsible human faith tradition and and philosophy. But Jesus is saying that's the core of it right there. That's a principle that we can use. But here's where it gets a little tricky, because if we just say that to you, say, okay, you want to maintain a balanced life in your home, and you want to see how you can start to manage all of this craziness that's going on and this extra stress and anxiety, uh, just love God and love your neighbor. Just do it to others. I mean, 
we're back into platitude land, aren't we? We're trivializing the nature. We're not meeting where the stress really is. It becomes irrelevant to the real life issues that you're facing. I mean, we all know these principles. And we all believe that they're true. But stating the principle, even though it's true, (laughs) can still be unhelpful unless there's at least one person in the marriage, one person in the home who is aware enough to put into use, and this is real-time use, these principles and set the tone for the home to de-escalate what is going on at any given moment. There has to be that one person who's willing to do this unilaterally. You know, so often in human relationships, and especially in marriages, um, we get dug in. You know, it's like the Western Front in World War II, where, where they, the, the, the British and the Germans were dug in into set trenches, and there was no man's, man's land in between. And you were afraid to even to pop your head up out of the trench to look across because there were shy, snipers just waiting to take your head off. And so everybody just stayed in their trenches, afraid to move. And this becomes the relationship. Who is the person who is willing to pop up, and not only pop up the head and willing to get it taken off, but start moving across no man's land to get to the other side and reestablish connection? Who is willing to take that risk? Who is willing to establish these principles so deeply in their own lives that they can start then to reconnect with people in the midst of their stress? Each one of us has a chance to be that person. And you can't do it alone, of course. What you can be, though, is a catalyst for transformation. If you are willing to be that person, to unilaterally start to understand the fears that are going on in your house, understand the fears of the person who is irritating you the most, to really listen, to be willing to compromise, to comfort, to encourage This is where it starts. Now, I have to stress, this is not going to work in an abusive relationship. It's not going to work with someone who is not willing to actually be moved by your attempts. And you still have to have that safety plan. But for most of us, if someone is willing to take those risks, if someone is willing to be that person, the other persons or person start to melt. They start to connect in a way that they weren't connecting before. They can start to build the awareness that the original person was showing in that moment, in real time. And that means everything to the temperature, the noise level, and the stress level of your home. Can we be that person? I know some of you are living alone. What what are you supposed to do then? You do the same thing, but you do it for yourself. Can you start to understand your own fears and not be beating yourself up because you're not handling it better? Can you do something about your isolation? Can you start reconnecting with people? Can you encourage yourself through the things that you do and the, and the, and the structure that you put in place for yourself? Whether you're alone or whether you're living with others, everything is a mixed bag, right? And at times like this, it's ramping up the stress level. Are you willing to be that person? Are you willing to do what it really takes in order to be that person? Which is another question altogether. 
And if you say yes, or if you say you would at least like to, then I suppose the question becomes, how do you do this? How are we going to start becoming that kind of person with that kind of awareness? Well, there's two ways. The first one is to practice awareness, practice presence. And the second is to start finding meaning and purpose in the pain. Find meaning and purpose in the challenge, in the difficulty that you're facing. All right. Why should we practice awareness? You know when you go into a hotel and you see on the, on the hallway wall, they'll have an evacuation plan and a map of where to go should there be a fire or some kind of thing, you know? How many of you actually read that? I don't think I've ever spent any time reading that thing. Marion actually reads the evacuation plan. I should have known that she would do that. Okay, so Marion is the one who is, is going to be our model for all of this. Because I'll tell you what, the time to read the evacuation plan on the wall is not when the hallway is filled with smoke and everyone is running around screaming that they're going to die and the fire engines are coming. That is not the time to try to figure out where it is you're supposed to go. All of that stuff needs to be internalized. It needs to be yours when the moment comes or it won't be there for you. If you prefer a, a musical analogy, if you haven't learned your scales and you haven't done your practicing, then when the moment comes, they won't be there for you. You won't be able to perform letting your muscles do what they know how to do if you haven't spent the time. We must have this internalized in advance if it's going to work in real time. And these principles that Jesus is giving us only work in real time. As long as they're just in our head, as long as they're just on our wall, on a plaque or in a framed, you know, artful piece, they're not going to do us any good. When they are internalized, when we have practiced them enough that we know that we know what awareness is and how it works, then something starts to change. We practice presence. We can practice what we call mindfulness. Just being aware of everything and allowing ourselves to be in that moment and connected. We can practice gratitude. Gratitude always grounds. If you are grateful, you are mindful at the same time. If you are grateful, you are not depressed. It's impossible to be grateful and depressed at the same time. If you can maintain that attitude of gratitude that we talk about so much, not by sitting there and counting your blessings in some, you know, disconnected, antiseptic sort of way, sterile way, but really feel the, the gratefulness of the gift that you have been given, especially a gift that you could never give yourself. And every one of those familial relationships in your home is a gift that you could never give yourself. That's the whole point. Can we practice and be aware of that gratitude? Can we practice meditation? That would be another way to do it, to work on centering prayer, to work on the art of stepping away from all of that noise and clutter and thought stream in your head that keeps you separated from the moment. These are strategies. These are ways to do things. You're going to need to give time to it. What you're trying to do is to create a consistent state of awareness. And it requires structure. It requires discipline. It was funny. When we, uh, when we did Sunday Easter service um, last week, there was a couple from Phoenix who um, dialed in and, and joined us. 
And she also, both of them showed up on Tuesday night, and so we were talking then. And she said that she hadn't been to an Easter service in years because she couldn't find a church that she felt really comfortable with. And so she came to our church online, but she said, but I dressed up for Easter. <laughs> I thought that was just the coolest thing. Becky, salute you, that she would do that. Because for her, dressing up was creating a sacred space. It was saying that this is really important. It was saying that this is what I am going to do to show myself that this is a special slot in the day. It's not just me and my PJs on the couch. Now, if you're in the PJs on your couch, don't take any offense. That's fine. We're glad you're here. But what she is doing is starting to create sacred space and to create structure for herself. If we really are going to practice presence and practice awareness, we're going to have to do it with structure. We're going to have to do it with discipline, which means that we have to structure our day. And maybe it means that you get up in the morning and you actually put on clothes that you would go out with. If you're working from home, well, then you've got some structure that, that is given to you. But if you're not working from home, it even becomes more difficult to get up and say, I am going to have a set time that I get up, and I'm going to have a routine that I do first in the morning, and it's going to consist of getting a cup of coffee, quiet time, reading, maybe inspirational reading, or some other type of reading. Maybe it's going to be meditation, centering prayer. Maybe it's going to be a walk or a run, but you're going to do it mindfully. And after you get through that routine, then you go to the next thing, the next block of time, and the one after that. But you actually set a routine for yourself that you become disciplined to. You can't imagine what a difference that's going to make in a house that seems chaotic, in a house that is chaotic, in a house where everything is kind of blowing all over the place, and there is just one long sort of gray stream from morning until night, and every day, all of a sudden, it's four or five in the afternoon, and you don't feel like you got anything done. Maybe there are projects you want to get to. Sharon is now sewing masks for people, and that's become a set thing that she does, and she's dedicating time to it, and she does it with the idea that she's helping people around her that can't get these masks. Can you set in place some kind of structure and be disciplined to it that you do mindfully, that you even do purposefully? I can't tell you how much of a difference that is going to make in the way that you experience your days. And of course, with the rest of the family, there are meals to cook and there are, there are kids to deal with or whatever is going on in your home. All of that is something that you put in the grid. And if you actually put it into a grid, put it in writing, hang it on the refrigerator, then you just plan the work and work the plan. It's like someone else telling you now what to do. It's 8 o'clock. This is what I do. Look at the schedule. But doing something like that, as formal or informal as you want to do it, but something that actually is taking you through... I have said so many times in here, and maybe you'll remember this, is that there are five elements that every single one of us needs in order to feel fulfilled as a human being in life and to actually fulfill our purpose as a human being in life. And those five things are community, accountability, structure, discipline, and service. If we don't have those five things, we are short-circuited. When, when anyone calls me and wants to counsel, first thing I want to do is find out what does your day look like, what does your week look like? Because what I find is those things are missing. Usually all of them or a majority of them are missing. If you are living alone out there right now, 
Your sense of community is pretty shot. But are you doing what you can to reestablish community? Are you calling people? Are you texting people? Are you taking advantage of Tuesday and Wednesday night Zoom conferences, other conferences? If you're in the 12-step program, are you going to meetings online through Zoom conferences? Most of the meetings are retooled. If your meeting isn't, there's another one that is. Are you just staying connected with people? Are you honing that sense of community? Are you taking the opportunity to call people that you haven't talked to in a while just to see how they're doing? You have no idea how a call at that moment might mean the world to somebody just as a call to you at a certain moment means the world, especially if there's no agenda and there's no reason and you're just calling to say hi. Those are the best calls that you can get. Reestablishing community, being accountable to those people. Have someone that you really can talk to and you can tell them what you're going through. Let them see into your life. Don't be ashamed to let them see that you're struggling so that you can talk about it. Just talking about it makes a huge difference. Setting up this structure that we're talking about, being disciplined to the structure, and then finding a way to serve. Frank was just saying, if it's possible for you to be able to shop for people who really can't get out because they are compromised physically in some way, to be able to do that or take them to the doctor or get them a mask, whatever it is, but find ways to serve even if it's just a phone call. Those five aspects of life that you do in sort of a disciplined and structured way is going to make all the difference to your level of awareness, your level of connection with people, and your ability to start being that person that we're talking about in your home and with everyone that you touch, even if it's just electronically. Now, what about this idea of meaning? So if we start practicing presence... A sense of purpose is going to come from that, just as we do the things that we're talking about doing. But if we're going to talk about meaning, what's the meaning of all of this? Then we've got to start digging a little bit deeper. And we need to take a, a, a look at our frame of reference and question the assumptions that we have about the way we're looking at a certain situation in our life. And what James has been telling us in the, first, in the first chapter of James is that we need to take that frame and completely turn it around and take a look at it from a different viewpoint. It was amazing to me as, as this all started, this lockdown and this pandemic, that we started the book of James basically at the same time. And that first couple of verses of James, James 1, 2, and 4, were so appropriate. And pretty much. We've been on the first 17 verses of of James 1 for about a month now because we just keep mining more and more stuff out of it. We haven't exhausted it yet. And every time that we start talking, all of the conversation that comes out on a Wednesday night is still getting more and more layers because there's so much there and it's so difficult for us to make that frame adjustment to get that perspective moved over. And if we take a look at James 1 and 2, just so you remember it, I know it's not in front of you, but it's really simple. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we're trying to reframe all this, This is what James is telling his people who were under their own duress at the time. Now, if someone's really hurting, 
you're not going to say this to them. You know, you're not going to give them a philosophical kind of answer to the pain that is real in their lives because that will trivialize it. At the time that you're just talking to someone who's really in the midst of it, you just be relational, of course. Give them the shoulder to cry on. Listen to them. But there is this deeper understanding that if you can get this other look, if you can see how what you're going through right now is producing growth, is producing an increased amount of empathy and compassion that's available to you, if you see how you're growing through all of this, it gives a sense of meaning to what what is happening. Now, consider it all joy then. In other words, can you start to take a look at these trials and what you're going through right now Instead of from a victimization point of view, from you being a victim, that something has been perpetrated on you, to now an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for completion. Once we start to make that change, everything else starts to follow. But then we had someone pop up on Wednesday, and I was so glad that she did. And she said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me I'm supposed to be joyful? about the difficulties that I'm going through, the hardships and the pain? I'm supposed to be happy about it? How does that exactly work? How could I possibly be happy about the pain? And that kicked off the next whole half hour of our session because it was the perfect question. How do we do that? What is meant by joy? And then someone followed up with me on email saying they were still having a problem with that even after we spent a half an hour talking about it in the group. I replied to her via email and I want to read some of what I replied, and and let's see if we can get that nuance, that distinction, because the word joy in English has connotations for us, even happiness has connotations for us, that really aren't going to take us where James is trying to take us. How should we understand the kind of joy we could have when we're encountering and enduring trials, challenges, difficulties, pain in life? What does that kind of joy mean? What should it feel like? Are we supposed to be happy about our painful circumstances? And are we less than we're supposed to be if we're not? In English, we need to get some distinction between joy as happiness and joy as a deeper kind of peace, acceptance, or maybe contentment, that while still felt, is not the same kind of emotional response as happiness. The Aramaic word translated as joy, and this is in James 1, verse 2, is haduta. And the Greek word is kara. And they both carry the concept of joy or gladness, but more in the sense of cheerfulness. Or, and I really like this one, calm delight. Calm delight. See where that's starting to hit us? Calm delight. I like calm delight especially, but the idea of remaining cheerful Okay, remaining cheerful, able to remain encouraging, and to consider the needs of others, even as we are experiencing difficulty or pain ourselves, is now getting us closer to James' meaning, I think. These concepts of James, and Jesus too, it's not just James, Jesus says exactly the same things, are very paradoxical. For me, joy is the quiet satisfaction quiet satisfaction, that I'm still in a connected place, even if it hurts. Still grateful, knowing that the pain comes from the loss of a real relationship or connection. 
And let's face it, if the connection hadn't been real, there would have been no pain at its loss, right? So the pain is actually proof of connection. See how perverse that is? The pain is actually proof of the connection that you had that is now lost or mitigated in some way. All that together is what James is calling joy, I think. So, a realistic, quiet, peaceful acceptance of the pain and the difficulties in life has to come from an awareness of purpose. If we don't understand the purpose of the pain, then it's just suffering. But if we see purpose in it, and we know that it's temporary, and we know that on the other side of it, there's going to be greater growth, greater ability to connect, then we can have that quiet acceptance. We can have that calm delight. It's not going to feel like exuberance. It's not going to feel like ecstatic joy. It's not like that. Not even what we think of as happiness. But it will grow us into someone who can listen who can compromise, who can comfort and encourage the people around him and her. And so I suppose the next question becomes, well, how do I get that ability? How do I take the steps toward that? At James 1.12, he says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's a lot of pitfalls in that for us. First of all, blessed. We think of that in a sort of spiritualized or religious sort of way. But blessed there is the same word that Jesus used in all the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's connected to the word for good. Tobe, blessed. Taba, good. And we've pounded taba as understood in Aramaically as ripe as opposed to bisha, unripe. The idea of ripeness, of maturity, of being in the right place at the right time, of being in harmony, is the same idea of the root of tobey. If you're blessed, it's because you are ripe and mature. Congratulations to you. You know, your essence is good. That's that idea. You're complete. You're whole. You're lacking nothing. Everything from James 2 is being ported over here to James 12. You're whole and complete and lacking nothing when you persevere under trial. For once you have done that, you have been approved, you will receive the crown of life. And then someone was talking about, what's, what's this about you know, being approved? And what's this about getting a reward? Are we now like trained seals again where we got to perform in order for God to approve us? I mean, what is going on here? It seems like we've just taken a step back from the the unconditional love that we are always harping on here in terms of Jesus' message, in terms of gospel, in terms of good news. So let's take a look at that. Because the objection is, how do I ever know that I'm good enough to be approved by God? How do I know that I'm ever good enough to get a reward from God, this crown of life we're talking about? And when do we get that exactly? Is that somewhere in heaven? And, and how is that helping me right now to get through? I just got to grin and bear it and get through, and then I get the reward, and then I get the approval. Again, by email. As for approval and crown of reward, yes, those bring unfortunate images and concepts in English. But as James uses it, the crown calls to mind the athletic games, the Olympic games in Greece. 
where the woven olive branch crown was the result of having completed the course, having endured to the end. It's not so much reward as it is the effect of the endurance, which is also the athlete's realization of his or her ability to endure. Do you see how we take that and we change? It's proof of the approval that is only realized because of the endurance. That all the time of preparation made him or her able to be equal to the challenge. Thought of this way, it's not really God approving and rewarding certain behavior in a quid pro quo transaction, but simply us proving to ourselves that we have become people capable of loving and relating as God does in every and any circumstance, not just the favorable ones. I think this is the crux of our reimagining the gospel by seeing it through Jesus' Hebrew eyes. To understand God as perfect love, love that is already complete and totally present, means that all God's decisions about us as the beloved are already made. That everything that God has to give has already been giving. That nothing is ever withheld, but is already present within us and in our midst, just as Jesus described kingdom. Right? He said, it's not out there someplace you're going to find. It's in your midst. It's among you. It's within. That all that is left unaccomplished in all of this is for us to realize this truth in our own lives to learn to trust it enough that we can face the risks of life in the same way that we face the securities. And the only way to accomplish this is to live as though this proposed gospel truth about God is already true. To endure through the risks and prove to ourselves that what we needed from God was already within and available. And our endurance itself was only possible because everything we needed was already within and available. Jesus said, follow me and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Same as endurance completing us. Same idea. So, think of it this way. God doesn't approve and gift us because we endure. We endure because we're already approved and gifted to endure as God endures. Or as John says it, we love because he first loved us. That's why it's our signature verse here because it is describing the basic nature of things. This is the essential truth of the gospel. This good news of perfect love. It's all that we need to endure. Everything that we need to endure with a calm and grateful and encouraging cheerfulness is already within us. It's already in our midst. It's always available with awareness. It is the awareness that allows us to see that we're not still waiting for something outside ourselves, but simply letting go of anything that would block us from this ability to be able to relate in our homes everywhere we go, as Jesus related. Our comfort will come knowing the pain of loss is proof of our real connection, proof of love, even if it's something that we feel a loss. 
And a life without pain is a life without connection, without meaning, without purpose, without identity. And we'll see that loss is the natural result of putting ourselves out as loving people, allowing ourselves to connect and imprint with another. And we will realize that those losses are keen because the connection is real. Now, what will this person look like who is aware enough to put these principles into real-time action in their own homes and in their own relationships, in their marriages, in their families, for those who can become this catalyst, for those who are, are willing to be loved, because that's what it takes. You can't love someone who's not willing to be loved, but for someone who is, to be that catalyst changes everything. What does that person look like? Jesus described beautifully exactly what that person looks like in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He talked about those who are not domineering, those who are humble, those who are submitted, devoted, empathetic, compassionate, understanding, those who are gentle, comforting, but also passionate, curious, engaged, patient, focused, persevering, undiverted. If you break down every one of those eight Beatitudes, those are the adjectives that you get. That is the portrait of someone who has brought awareness and a sense of meaning and purpose to every situation, both the difficult ones and the good ones. But these qualities won't remain abstract in the person who has really internalized this, the person who is really following Jesus and risking something along the way. It won't be spiritualized or over-spiritualized. It's going to be useful, and it's going to be relevant, and it's going to be able to meet people where their need lies. It's going to be qualities in this person that is going to shape the nature of every relationship. If it's internalized, and if it's acted on in faith, which is simply acting as if something is true until you trust it and know that it's true. There's a poem that I remember reading when I was a kid that always struck me. And uh, it's a pretty famous poem. You'll probably recognize it. But I think it captures so much of what Jesus is trying to get across here, what James is trying to get across here, of the kind of person who has this quality and this ability, but puts it in language that maybe will make it live a little bit more. Rudyard Kipling wrote this poem for his son, or at least it's to his son, as fatherly advice. But see if it resonates with you. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. Yet don't look too good or talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. 
or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools? If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. And which is more, you'll be a woman, my daughter. You'll be the person who becomes the touchstone in your home. You'll be the person who becomes the anchor, the hearth, the heart, the center, the kitchen, which is the center of each home. You'll become that in your own home, in your own family. And you'll learn whether this or any challenge, whatever this or any challenge has to teach you. And you'll know, and you'll know that you know that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all is still right with God and God's universe and your life and your world if you can be that person if you can establish those things in your life that will touch everyone that you touch let's pray Father we want to be that person but we don't know if we have the strength to do what it takes to follow that path. We've lost some confidence in ourselves and we've seen the cracks as we have been faced with this difficulty. Give us just enough of who you are and a touch that tells us that the risk is not too great to set out to set a schedule for ourselves, to start showing up to things that will give us the awareness and the sense of meaning and purpose that we need to be able to see what is going on right in front of us and make our choices for everyone who's involved. Conscious choices, choices for the good, choices that you would make, Lord. We want to be that person but we don't know if we have it in us and we don't know exactly how to get there. Help us just to keep putting one foot in front of another until we realize that we are on the path and we see the changes being made and our confidence grows and we understand how approved we are in you. We understand that we're already wearing the crown of life as long as we keep running the race with you. Father, thank you so much for everything that you've given us. 
Thank you for this time that we can have together to talk about such things. Bring us closer together, even through all of this. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. I heard you all say amen. Amen. Yeah. And once again, if there is anything that you want to talk about, if there's anything that you're unsure about, if there are difficulties that you're having, please call. Our phone numbers are all listed on the website in the contact section. You can find my phone number, Marion's phone number, Frank's phone number, Scott's phone number. You can find John's phone number. They're there, and you can call any of us. If you need help, or you just want to talk through some things, or you can text, or you can email. You know, there, there's, a, there's a uptick in all of this connection that I've been having with people right now, which is beautiful, and I welcome it. And I am never too busy not to be able to answer any of those. So please call us. Let us know what's going on. Even if you just want to say hi. Remember, those are the best calls ever. But let's stay connected. And let's stay connected with each other even more awarely. Okay? Because as things go on further, we know that the anxiety is going to ramp up. It's just human nature. And we need to be more present to each other while we do that. So let's please do. And we'll do our best to contact you as well and see if we can also just check in. In the meantime, I think we're at the point where y'all need to take virtual hands. So if you are with your family or if you're with your significant other, um, go ahead and take hands right now, unless you're social distancing even there. And uh, we'll do the same thing here. And whose father? Our father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Another another Sunday morning. Enjoy the rest of the day in connection, and we'll see you hopefully Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and next Sunday. Bye-bye.